you for that wonderful time of praise. Wow, I don't think I've uh, I've read many words with live it and praise it in such a long time. So um, thank you. That's you know the church that I've come out of is um, like we we're definitely a reformed congregation, and our Sunday liturgy is very high church. Uh, you might not even know what that means, but basically we're very Presbyterian in the way that we do our worship, but the songs are all from Australia. We all sing Hillsong. <laughs> so this is so refreshing for me to be able to, uh, to hear some good Elizabethan English. It's such a wonderful refreshment, and uh, thank you for that. That was wonderful. Um, Again, uh, so honored to be here today and to kick off this first day of our time together talking about what it means for us to be refreshed in the wellsprings of the gospel with this theme of the well. Um, that means we're going to, tonight, look at John's gospel where John's very gospel talks about this very notion of Jesus being the living bread and the living waters. And tonight, we're going to look at John chapter 6, and it's going to be a little bit of a long message. The way I've done it is all the day messages are short, all the evening messages are long. So I don't know why I did that, but I just figured you probably have a better chance of staying awake at night than you are during the day. Uh, maybe it's the complete the other way around. So, uh, please help yourself with some coffee, do, do what you can, and I'll do my best not to put you to sleep too quickly. So, um, John chapter 6, we're going to take a look, and we're going to read verses 22 to verse 40. So why don't we all just honor the Lord as his word is being read by standing together. As I read to us John's Gospel, the 6th chapter, verses 22 to 40. And it reads as follows. The next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite side of the shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered in with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed the seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must, we do to, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And please join me as we ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us through your holy word. 
Lord Jesus, you have promised that when two or more are gathered in your name, there, by the summoning of your spirit, you would be present among us, and that you would bless us with your presence through the preaching of your word in a way that we could never capture on our own. And so, Father, we pray that you would fulfill the promise that you made through your Son, and that we would receive everything that you want us to receive tonight, that you, you would lead us through your word, through conviction, through edification, through equipping, so that we may leave this place more like Jesus and more prepared to live out the commission that you have given to us, the church, of being a blessing to the world for the sake of your glorious kingdom. We pray now that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, I'm about to tell you something that I'm sure is probably going to offend some of you guys. But you know what? That's my job as a preacher. My job as a preacher is to tell the truth in spite of how you receive it, in spite of how you may be offended by it. And so, here goes. Are you ready? I am convinced that Burger King Whoppers are far superior than Big Macs. <laughs> I am so convinced. Now, <laughs> now, before you dismiss me, Pastor, right, as someone who's just completely ignorant and has no idea what I'm talking about, you need to understand that uh, my family was a McDonald's family. I grew up eating nothing but Big Mac since I was a little boy. But then something happened when I went to seminary the first time. I did flunk, I went twice, but <laughs> when I went to seminary the first time, I had a Big Mac Whopper, and it was as if the scales fell off my tongue, and I never returned to the Golden Arches. Why? Well, they tell us in their motto, right? We do it your way, right? That's the motto of Burger King, which essentially means that when it comes to the burger that I order at the Burger King, I am the king. If one night I order a burger and I want cheese in my burger, I say, give me a Whopper with cheese. If one evening my taste buds are reaching out for not just one, but two patties, I'll say, give me a double Whopper with cheese, right? When I'm at Burger King, I am the king of my burger. When you're at Burger King, when you go, Right? You should go sometime, right? You are the king of your burger, right? When any of us go to Burger King, we are the king of our burger. My burger, your burger, our burger. Christian, let me ask you this follow-up question. When it comes to your Jesus and my Jesus, our Jesus, who is the king? Now, at first you're like, Pastor, that's such a ridiculous question to ask, and what a horrible analogy because of what it implies. You're not in any way saying that we would treat Jesus the way we would treat a Burger King, right? Of course, Jesus is the king. Never in a million years would any of us in this room of this illustrious church known as Cornerstone Presbyterian would ever treat Jesus in such a way, the way we would approach a Burger King, as if his main purpose is to appease our appetites. Oh, really? Well, someone forgot to tell Jesus. Because consider what he says about a bunch of people who claim to be his followers in this passage, starting in verse 26. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. It seems that there were people who claimed to call Jesus their king, but instead of truly treating him as the king of kings, they treated him more like Burger King, right? And sad to say, not much seems to have changed today. A few years ago, I came across a book entitled The Empty Church. The author, a church historian by the name of Thomas Reeves, he says this about the current climate of the church in America today. He writes, quote, Christianity in modern America tends to be easy, 
of beat, convenient, and compatible. It does not require self-sacrifice, discipline, humility, an otherworldly outlook, a zeal for souls, a fear, as well as love of God. There is little guilt and no punishment, and the payoff in heaven is virtually certain. What we now have might be labeled consumer Christianity. The cost is low, and customer satisfaction seems guaranteed. Consumer Christianity. It's a growing problem in churches in America today, and perhaps, perhaps, it is a problem in this church. Tonight, I want to take a look at this passage in John chapter 6, especially as we think about this theme of the well, right? This idea that Jesus is the source, the wellspring of our life. And as we take a look at this passage, we're going to be able to assess on whether or not our claims with our words that Jesus is our King is something we genuinely mean in our heart of hearts and in the actions that come out of it. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you as it pertains to Jesus himself. Number one, Jesus does not exist to simply satisfy your needs. Okay? Jesus does not exist to simply satisfy your needs. Number two, Jesus does not exist to exalt you. He does not exist to exalt you. And finally, Jesus loves you because he doesn't satisfy your needs nor exalt you. Okay? So three things about Jesus I'm going to talk about tonight. He doesn't exist to satisfy your needs. He doesn't exist to exalt you. And because he does neither, he deeply loves you. Okay? Let's jump right in. First, Jesus does not exist to simply satisfy your needs. Now, don't misunderstand the title of that point because what I am not saying is that Jesus could care less about your genuine needs that you have. The Bible is clear. Our God is a God of compassion. Okay? He, he is a God of compassion who cares for the needy. Our passage begins with a crowd looking for Jesus, and when they find him, as recorded for us in verse 24, we come to find out earlier on in this chapter that this is the same crowd that he miraculously fed with just five loaves and two fishes. And in fact, if you read Mark's version of that same account, you come to understand why Jesus did that miracle for this crowd. It says to us in Mark's gospel, when he saw a large crowd, he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You see, whenever Jesus saw someone being neglected, suffering, or hungry, he always went out of his way to show compassion and mercy. He always did, right? And as his followers, we are to imitate our God in that way. We are called to show the same mercy and compassion whenever we have opportunity as well as the call to do it, which is all the time. Okay? But take a look at what happens when this same crowd that he miraculously fed, what they ask him in verse 25 when they finally get to him. He says, they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now on the surface, this seems like a very innocent, very you know, unoffensive question to ask. And yet, look at how Jesus responds to this seemingly innocent, unoffensive question in verse 25. Verse 26, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now, when you read that, you cannot help but to read into a very offended tone as that Jesus is very upset by the simple question that they ask him in verse 25. And so we ask, why is Jesus so upset? Why is he so offended by that simple question of, Rabbi, when did you get here? Here's why. Jesus is offended at this crowd's question because it reveals to Jesus that they see their needs incorrectly. And because they see their needs incorrectly, they see Jesus incorrectly. Let me explain. When he says to them, you are looking for me because you ate the loaves and had your fill, he is showing to them and us that this crowd sees their ultimate need 
and therefore their ultimate priority in alleviating their physical needs, which in this case is the problem of hunger, right? This crowd thinks that their greatest need ever is simply alleviating their physical hunger. Now, hunger is a genuine problem. We still have it today, right? Even now, with all the technology and all the wealth that's been generated, there is still the problem of starvation in other parts of the world. Of course, everyone is saying different reasons as to why this is still a recurring problem. People say it's a governing problem, it's a political problem, a social problem, an infrastructural problem. But here in this passage, Jesus is telling this crowd, and he's telling us, then when it comes to problems, whether you're talking about hunger, the problem of needing safety, the problem of homelessness, homelessness, excuse me, all of these problems stem from a profound spiritual source. Right? All the needs that are out there, no matter what kind of category needs you're talking about, physical, emotional, psychological needs, all of it finds its source to a deeper spiritual problem. Listen to how Pastor Tim Keller, how he explains. He writes this, quote, What are human needs? Needs are dependencies. All human beings were created dependent beings. We are not self-sufficient. We are only adequate in God. If we had stayed in perfect fellowship with God, we would nevertheless have had needs. However, we would not have known pain since all our needs would have been immediately and continuously met in Him. But now, separated from Him, we are under a curse, and our unfulfilled dependencies bring us emptiness, frustration, and pain in all areas of life. To fully understand the nature of our needs, we need to look at when man fell into sin. For it is in the fall of man that is the root of all our miseries from unmet needs. What's he saying? He's saying things like hunger, loneliness, fear are just so much more than just physical, emotional, and psychological needs. No, all of these needs stem from a spiritual need because they all stem from sin, which is essentially a spiritual issue. And until you understand that, you're never going to see your needs correctly. And when you don't see your needs correctly, you will not see Jesus correctly. And the danger of not seeing Jesus correctly is that you can easily deceive yourself into thinking that you're so <laughs> devoted to God that you love Jesus when in fact you don't love Jesus at all, you only love what he can give you. I mean, consider this crowd in this passage in John 6. Look at the behavior that they exhibit in verses 24 to 25 specifically. What are they doing? They're going out of their way, right, to search for Jesus. They get near to Jesus. They're going from town to town, right? They're spending countless of hours on the hunt. They even inconvenience themselves and their families to cross over a massive body of water to look for this guy. Right? Now, from an outsider's perspective, looking at the behavior of this crowd, they can easily conclude, wow, look at this crowd. Look how much they're willing to inconvenience themselves. Look how far they're willing to go just to get near to Jesus. They must really, really love Christ at all costs, right? And yet, when Jesus confronts the crowd, and he basically tells them, look, I am not here to fulfill your physical needs. What I'm here is to confront you of your greatest need, which is for you to acknowledge that you are a sinner that needs to repent and turn your ways to God. Right? That's what he says to them. And do you remember what this crowd does in response? We didn't read it, but I'm going to read it to you now. This is verse 66 of this very same chapter. It says, as a result of this, many of his disciples... Right? His disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. You may be shocked to discover that Jesus had more than 12 disciples. At one point, he had up to hundreds of disciples, and it was at this critical juncture when he told them what their great need was that they said, you know what, I'm done. How do you make sense of a crowd 
that is seemingly willing to do anything and everything to get near to Jesus, but as moment as Jesus gives them this statement, they say, you know what, we're done with you. How do you explain that? Well, it's easy to explain, actually. How would you feel if someone told you that you are a wicked sinner? Would you feel good? Would you feel happy? Would you feel comfortable? No, you feel the complete opposite. Look, if someone told you, man, your greatest need right now is for you to recognize and you to acknowledge that you are a messed up, wicked, perverted, selfish, evil person, you're not going to feel good, you're not going to feel comfortable, you're going to feel uncomfortable, and that's the whole point. Jesus does not exist to simply satisfy your needs because he does not exist to make your life comfortable. Let me say that again. Jesus does not exist to simply satisfy your needs because he does not exist to make you comfortable. And I think this is something many of us in here really need to address and acknowledge in our lives. Because there are so many who are in the church today who will say that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is their king. But if they're brutally honest with themselves and they do some honest self-reflection, they'll come to realize that they have narrowed the role of Jesus' presence in their life where all he is about their comfort. Right? That Jesus' only main objective in their lives is to make themselves comfortable. Okay? But if that's your understanding of Christianity, then I'm sorry to say you don't understand Christianity at all. Consider these very penetrating words from C.S. Lewis. He writes, quote, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. If you only see Jesus as someone who just simply meets your needs, which is another way of saying that he's there to make your life more comfortable, then I'm sorry to say you don't have a correct view of Jesus. And when you don't have a correct view of Jesus, that means you don't have a real Jesus you're following. You're not following Jesus at all. So that's the first thing Jesus is trying to teach us here. He does not exist simply to meet your need. Now, closely related to this is another incorrect view of Jesus that is so pervasive in the American church today. And this leads me to my next point. Jesus does not exist to exalt you. When you look at verses 30 to 36, you'll notice that this crowd is referencing a lot of the Old Testament, specifically the history of Israel when they left Egypt and right before they went into the promised land, God miraculously fed them with this heavenly bread called manna, right? And here's what's so interesting. They make a citation. You notice quotation marks on a phrase that they are citing, right? It's in verse 31. He gave them bread to eat. Now, here's what's so interesting about that phrase. It's nowhere in the Old Testament. If you try to find it, you will not see it. This is not a quote from the Old Testament. So we don't know the context behind the statement, which means we have no idea who this he is that gave them bread to eat. Now, of course, most of us would just assume, oh, that's obviously referring to God, because we know the story of Exodus, we know the story of Numbers, right? God gave them bread to eat. But if you look at what Jesus says in verse 32, you come to discover that this crowd is not thinking of Jesus at all. Listen to what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Turns out that this crowd was not thinking of God as the one who provided manna, but Moses. Now this reference to Moses is very important because what it shows us is the greatest hope that Israel had in their hearts. Let me explain what I mean. Moses represents to Israel what the founding fathers represents to us. Moses is responsible for establishing the religious, 
social, moral, and civic institution of Israel. Okay? And by referring to Moses as the way they are here in this passage, reveals what Israel's greatest desire, what their greatest yearning, and their greatest hope was as a society. And you know what that was? Israel wanted to be the greatest nation on earth. Not one of the greatest nations, but they wanted to be the greatest nations of the earth that ruled all the other nations. They wanted to be the best. Kind of like the way you know Americans tend to think of themselves today, right? On the international platform. They really thought that they would be the greatest nations to rule all the other nations. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament, you see this narrative constantly being repeated where Israel's yearning to be the greatest nation, and yet they're frustrated because that desire is not being met. And in fact, when Jesus arrives on the scene, this is a season where Israel's frustrated because Israel is not the greatest nation. In fact, they're not even one of the greatest nation. They're a conquered nation, right? The Roman Empire has now ruled over them. And the question is, why is Israel constantly being frustrated with this desire? Well, we see it in this reference to Moses. You see, one of the things that Israel constantly did throughout its history is that instead of looking to God to satisfy their desires to be a great nation, they always looked to someone other than God to fulfill this desire in their hearts. And we see the genesis of this in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where we see the recording of Israel first accounting for their desire to have a human king. Listen to what it says in 1 Samuel 8. They, Israel, said to him, Samuel, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know that the king who will reign over them will do. But their people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Here we see the origin of the monarchy in Israel, but notice how it got started. The people of Israel wanted a king, and so they go to the prophet Samuel and, and basically says, anoint us a human king. Samuel is clearly upset. He's like, what are you talking about, guys? Why in the world would you want that? You already have a king. His name is Yahweh. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He is a divine king. And what do Israelites do again? They push back, no, we want a human king. Give us the human king. Now, let me ask you, why would Israel want a human king when the creator of heaven and earth is already their king. Why in the world would Israel prefer a human king over a divine king? Well, let me ask you this question. Do you think it would be possible for the people of Israel to play politics, to manipulate, to coerce, to blackmail a divine king the way they could with a human king? Probably not, right? I mean, we've seen House of Cards, we've seen how politics works sometimes, right? That when someone is a king, he's not really king. When someone is queen, she's not really queen, right? They're really permitted to be king, permitted to be queen, so long as they please the one who exalts them, right? And Israel knew this. They knew that if God was their king, they would not be able to exalt themselves as they exalted him. And so what do they want? They want a human king whom they can play politics with, whom they can coerce, right? Who they can kind of blackmail and pressure and do all this and that, so that by exalting this king, what they're really doing is exalting themselves. 
That was the mindset of Israel. In fact, we see it even in this chapter that we just read just a moment ago. Because in an earlier part of this chapter, Israel actually tried to do this to Jesus. Oh, you, you don't know because we didn't read it. But listen to what it says, starting in verse 14 of John 6. After the people saw the miraculous signs that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. That is so odd. Here is Jesus who is the true king, the king of kings for that matter. And his people want to make him king. And he's like, no thank you. Why in the world would Jesus refuse the very crown he's entitled to wear? Because he knows. He knows that though they want to exalt him, they don't really want to exalt him. Am I right? They know that by exalting him, they're carrying this expectation of this quid pro quo. We exalt you so that you would exalt us. And so Jesus says, no thank you. In fact, he's saying no thank you throughout the Gospels. And what eventually happens to Jesus when he chronically says no to Israel's attempt to exalt him? They kill him, right? They conspire. They politicize. They lie. They cheat. They play politics. And they end up killing him, which is so duplicitous, is it not? Because in one moment in the Gospel narratives, these people are bowing down to Jesus as he's riding on a donkey going into Jerusalem, saying, Hosanna in the highest, great king. And then a moment later, they're screaming out to Herod, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Such duplicity. And yet, we see this duplicity all the time. Right? We know of people in the church, we hear of people in the church who constantly say, yes, Jesus is my king, I exalt him, and they raise the banner of his sovereignty over their lives. But as soon as they have some personal setback, as soon as they are inconvenienced, as soon as they have to start suffering for their faith, it's almost as if their immediate reaction is, Jesus, you failed at your job as my king. And so now, you're impeached out of my life. Right? I impeach you. You are no longer my sovereign. People who think like this may start off thinking they really exalt Jesus, but in fact, they don't. Listen, the Bible makes it clear we exist to exalt Jesus. Jesus does not exist to exalt us. He is our king. He is our master, which means there's nothing that he could not ask of us. There is nothing that he cannot take from us. There is nothing that he cannot impose on us to carry. There is nothing that he cannot do or do to us to where he would need our permission. That is who he is. You are to exalt him, not the other way around. And if you don't understand this, then I'm sorry to say you will never understand what it means to truly have Jesus as king. Consider these very sobering words from Pastor John Piper. This is from his book, God is the Gospel. Fantastic book. I recommend you read. Listen to what he says, quote, The acid test of biblical God-centeredness and faithfulness to the gospel is this. Do you feel more loved because God makes much of you? Or because at the cost of his son, he enables you to enjoy making much of him forever? Does your happiness hang on seeing the cross of Christ as a witness to your worth or as a way to enjoy God's worth forever? Is God's glory in Christ the foundation of your gladness? The sad thing is that a radically man-centered view of love permeates our culture and our churches. 
From the time they can toddle, we teach our children that feeling loved means feeling made much of. We have built whole educational philosophies around this view of love, curricula, parenting skills, motivational strategies, therapeutic models, and selling techniques. Most modern people can scarcely imagine an alternative understanding of feeling love other than feeling made much of. If you don't make much of me, you are not loving me. But when you apply this definition of love to God, it weakens his worth undermines his goodness, and steals our final satisfaction. If the enjoyment of God himself is not the final and best gift of love, then God is not the greatest treasure. His self-giving is not the highest mercy. The gospel is not the good news that sinners may enjoy their maker. Christ did not suffer to bring us to God, and our souls must look beyond him for satisfaction. This distortion of divine love into an endorsement of self-admiration is subtle. It creeps into our most religious acts. We claim to be praising God because of his love for us. But if his love for us is at bottom him, making much of us, who is really being praised? We are willing to be God-centered, it seems, as long as God is man-centered. We are willing to boast of the cross as long as the cross is a witness to our worth. Who, then, is our pride and joy? I have a lot of quotes today, I'm sorry. So I did this this morning. This is what I have in return for tonight. If you really believe Jesus is your king, Christian, then you need to remember you are to exalt him. He is not to exalt you. Now, at this point in the message, I'm sure many of you are honestly not very encouraged because this sermon just sounds so militant. Right? It kind of reminds you of your old days growing up in the Korean church service group, right? Because it almost conveys this idea that, that God really doesn't care about our needs and that he really doesn't care about us other than the fact that we just make much of him and exalt him, right? So I want to try and end this message by trying to convince you the complete opposite. I want to try and convince you that actually it's because Jesus doesn't make our comfort our his top priority and meeting our needs his top priority as well as him not exalting us as really a display of his wonderful love for us. And so let me begin that now by going to my final point. Jesus loves you because he does not satisfy your needs or exalt you. Uh, back in 2005, 60 Minutes did an interview of Tom Brady. You guys know who Tom Brady is. For all the ladies, not to make generalizations, Tom Brady uh, was and is still the quarterback for the New England Patriots. Yes, I know how you feel. Right, this is Eagles Town, right? Yeah. <laughs> So Tom, I'm not a fan of Tom Brady either, so don't don't boo me. Okay? But anyway, back in 05, the guy was at the top of his game. I mean, everyone like, loved him. Everyone thought he was awesome. I think maybe even some Eagles fans liked him back then, right? And he was basically on the top of his game, again, on so many different commercials, covers of every magazine. It just seemed like he was the envy of the whole world. I mean, you couldn't wish for a more better life than Tom Brady was living at that time, which is why the reporter was absolutely shocked at one point in the interview when Brady admitted to this. He said this, quote, why do I have three Super Bowl rings, he had three at the time, and still think that there is something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is, I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, there's gotta be more than this. The reporter then asked, well, what's the answer? To which he responds, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football, and I love being the QB for this team. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm still trying to find. Now, when I saw this interview, and you can still see it, by the way, on YouTube. Just Google it, right? <laughs> but when I saw this portion of the interview, I had this epiphany, this tremendous epiphany. Here is a man 
who has every need met at any moment of any time, in real time, right? If the guy is hungry, he can eat at the most exclusive, delicious restaurants anywhere in the world. If he's lonely, he can easily get you know, the most beautiful, gorgeous women on the planet that 99% of the men on this planet couldn't even capture the attention of. Right? If he wanted to live in a beautiful home anywhere in the world, he could totally do it, and then some. If he was depressed, he could hire the most famous and accomplished counselor who could prescribe the most expensive and effective drugs out there to make him feel better. Right? Every possible earthly comfort was readily available to this man. And you know what? He could do all of this without Jesus. Right? He could have it all without Jesus, right? And yet look at what he's saying. With every need satisfied, with every comfort available in his life, he still feels insufficient. He still feels something is off, something is not right with him. He feels paused. And here's the thing, you don't have to be as successful as Tom Brady, right? To feel this nagging sense that something is off with your life. I'm sure some of you, if not all of you, have felt this. And if you haven't, you will. This is something that C.S. Lewis once referred to as the inconsolable longing of the human heart. Right? Listen to what one theologian by the name of Cornelius Plantica, how he describes it. He writes, quote, We may want a good career or a family or a particular kind of life, and these things may come to us. But if so, they will not fill all our niches because we want more than these things can give. Even if we fall deeply in love and marry another human being, we discover that our spiritual and one, sexual oneness isn't final. It's wonderful, but not final. Something in us keeps saying, not this, or still, beyond. See, it's because of this inconsolable longing, this still beyond haunting, that people will feel that Jesus says, this is why... You cannot make me all about simply meeting your earthly needs. Because if the time comes when all of your earthly needs are met and you're still dissatisfied, I don't want you to attribute that dissatisfaction to me. Right? That is why Jesus says, do not reduce me to who I truly am by simply saying that all I'm good for is satisfying your earthly needs. Because when the time comes, if the time comes, that all your earthly needs are met and you're still unhappy, don't say it's because of me. Because Jesus promises us something about himself. What does he say? Verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that if you make Jesus the center of your life, you will never suffer the tragedy of hungry. That's what he's saying. But you will never come to that conclusion if you reduce Jesus to just the level of your earthly desires. Because if you do, and you're dissatisfied, you're going to think, man, this Jesus guy, he's not what he claimed to be. And so you have no one else to turn to in hope, and you're now stuck in this despair of this inconsolable longing, forever doomed, feeling lost, right? Do you now understand why actually Jesus not simply being about satisfying your earthly needs is one of the most loving things that he can be to us? Because he's trying to show us that when the time comes when you are dissatisfied, even having all your needs met, even after being comfortable, that you can still have hope when those things don't satisfy. You can still look to me. But that hope is gone, folks, when all you think of Jesus is simply the one who just meets your earthly needs, who's only about your comforts. Do you get that? I hope you do. Because now we've got to move on to this second idea of Jesus not existing to exalt you. How is that an encouraging thing? How is that something that we could take joy and hope in? 
Well, take a listen to what it says in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Here, the Apostle John is having a vision where he records for us what he hears at the end of the world, when Jesus comes back in the second coming, and he records what he hears his master, Jesus, saying. And the reason why we know this is Jesus talking is the way by how he describes himself. What does the person talking say? He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Okay? That is a reference of Jesus as the exalted cosmic king, when he is finally put on the throne, and there is universal recognition where he is truly the king of kings and lord of lords. And so here's the question. What does Jesus do? The first thing, as soon as he exalted, as soon as he's inaugurated as the cosmic king, what's the first agenda? Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things will be gone forever. Isn't that interesting? You know, whenever a person gets inaugurated and exalted officially for the first time as either king, prime minister, or president, the first thing on the agenda is what? A huge celebration, right? Where everyone who's on the bottom total pole who are the servants work tirelessly to exalt the king and to celebrate and to make it all about the king or the queen or the prime, whoever, right? It's all about festive joy. It's all about decadence. It's all about just indulgence. But Jesus, once he's exalted king, the first thing that he does is not some massive celebration where the people at the bottom pole are, being, are serving him. No, he goes down and he serves them. He wipes away their tears and he binds all the brokenhearted and he brings healing and comfort and restoration. Here's the question we need to ask for. Who is... How, who is better off? How is the... I mean, how do I say this? Is the world better off when Jesus is exalted or when we're exalted? Who is better off? The world, how is the world better off when Jesus is exalted or when we are exalted? You see, one of the things that the Bible is trying to make clear to us is that it's actually beneficial to you, to me, to all of creation. When the one person who's exalted is not you or me or any other human being, it has to be Jesus because he uses his exalted power not to indulge in himself, not to ego trip, not to make it all about him, but to the restoration of creation. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, Pastor, I would do the same thing. Maybe you would have the audacity to say that. You know, if I was in Jesus, I would do the exact same thing. Oh, really? You would? Can we be honest? What have you done that would indicate that? Do you know that compared to the rest of the world, 85%, roughly speaking, you have more exalted power than 85% of the world right now? You have more money, you have more education, you have more social networks, you have more influence, you have more resources, 
right? You have more exalted power than 85% of the world's population here and now. And let me ask you, what have you done with it? Have you used any of it to bind the brokenhearted? Have you used any of it to wipe away any tears? Or have you used some of it mostly to indulge in yourself? To get a bigger house, a flatter screen, a newer car, a more recognizable label of name on your clothing. Let's be brutally honest. Is the world better off when we are exalted or when Jesus is exalted? Scripture makes it so clear. When Jesus is exalted, the world is better off, and that includes us. And there's no group of people who know this better than those who have suffered tremendously. Just a few years ago, I came across a beautiful blog written by a beautiful woman who recently shared about some personal tragedy that came into her life. Uh, she lost her husband to cancer, and he left her and their two children behind, and she wrote a beautiful blog post that I'm going to read to you now. It's a very long blog post, and I'm sorry, but it's a beautiful post that I think you guys need to read in full. And she entitled it, Why the Church Doesn't Need Coffee Bars. Listen to what she says. <clears throat> My husband passed away February 14, 2017, after a two-year battle with cancer. My husband endured cycle after cycle of chemo. He was separated from his children many nights. He was hooked up to a chemo uh, machine for 24 hours at a time. He listened to the doctors tell him bad news after bad news. He was left paralyzed and unable to get out of bed. And he never said much. Uh, he never said how much he appreciated the coffee bar at the church. Never once did he say he loved the lighting in the sanctuary. He never told me how cool it was that they put a couch on the platform. He didn't boast of the graphics and props on the platform. He talked about Jesus. He quoted scriptures. He reminded me of sermons we had heard. And in the middle of the night, he sang songs of praise and worship to God as he spent time praying. Because nothing at church does, because nothing a church does is strategize to bring in members, help you in oh, excuse me. Am I reading this correctly? Yeah. Because nothing a church does is strategize to bring in members helps you in the time of the storm. It is only Jesus. On February 13th, I had the most difficult task of telling my children their dad was not going to make it, and the next day at 724, the doctors declared him dead. And as I lay next to my children at night, listening to my daughter sobs uncontrollably because she misses her dad so much, I am not thinking about how trendy my church is. I am thinking that my strength comes solely from God. I don't have my best friend with me anymore. And even though I take comfort in knowing he is in heaven, I can't talk to my husband. I can't text him during the day. I can't share with him my frustration. I can't hold his hands. I can't hug him. I can't kiss him. He is not here. And as I drive to church during the week, I am not thinking that I am so glad the leadership are reading How to Grow Your Church books and adopting cool sermon series. I am thinking how desperate I need Jesus. When church leaders sit around and discuss how they can reach people, I don't think they have the widow in mind. I don't think they have the cancer patient in mind. I don't think they have the children who are growing up without a parent in mind. I'm not paying attention to the church decor when I walk through the doors. I don't want to smell fresh brewed coffee in the lobby. I don't want to see a trendy pastor on the platform. I don't care about the graphics or the props on the platform. I am hurting in a way that is almost indescribable. My days are spent working full time. My nights are spent homeschooling and taking care of my two young children. I don't have shared duties with a spouse anymore. Everyone, everything is on my plate. And when I go to church, I desperately want to hear the word of God. The church does not need any more coffee bars. They don't need the lighting. They don't need the concerts. They don't need the trend setting. They don't need couches on the platform. They don't need to dim the lights to attract people. The only thing they need is Jesus. This woman understands. Right? 
why it is better that Jesus is exalted and not us. Because in instances where some may be exalted like church leaders, right? the thing they think of is, let's put a coffee bar in the sanctuary. Let's create nice programs to entertain our people and our kids. When Jesus is exalted, a woman who lost her husband has hope. Children who've lost their father have peace. The question that we need to ask ourselves is, is the world better off when Jesus is exalted or when we are? See, my hope and prayer, especially tonight, is that you can understand that when Jesus says, I am not here to satisfy your needs and to make you comfortable or to exalt you, you would not take offense to that, but instead you would see that as the greatest news that you could ever hear. Because it displays a God who loves you more deeply than you could ever possibly imagine all on your own. And so here's my question tonight, Cornerstone. Why are you here? Why are you at this retreat? The theme of this retreat is about the well. And, and the idea is that you could come and be refreshed, right? But what refreshes your soul about Jesus? Is it because he makes much of you, the way Piper says, is so wrong with the church today? Is it because you're just so happy that he's going to be about making you comfortable in life and just make you feel so exalted in your life? Or is it going to be because of who Jesus truly is? The one who deeply loves you beyond your needs and beyond your pride of needing to be exalted. I hope and pray that this, be, that this idea in and of itself would just really resonate in your heart and it would chronically haunt you in a very joyful way. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we think more and more about who your Son is, who our Lord is, that we would recognize of the incredible beauty of his exaltedness over our lives and that we would see that he is the God that is so glorious and so worthy to have our complete devotion and commitment to. Father, we are plagued living in a society that is filled that is filled with sanctuaries of people who claim that you are their king, Jesus. But in reality, what they say with their mouth does not follow with their hearts and their actions. Father, would you prevent us from falling into that same false testimony? Would you protect us from such false faith? And that we would truly be the people who really live out the joy of the Jesus who we look to, to be the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, we need your grace because without it we cannot live this out. And so, Father, in our weakened and immature state, leaving us in such an impotent spiritual demeanor, oh God, save us so that we could be people who are truly alive for you and devoted to you. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.